0: And Paul eventually left Titus behind, going on to Macedonia. He's writing um, this letter, either from Decapolis or from Corinth. And so he left Titus, Titus in Crete with certain instructions, and now he's writing him this letter. And in part, if you jump to the very end of the letter of Titus, you'll see the very last phrase, grace be with you all. And so it's evident That Paul expected those at the Cretan church to be reading this letter. This letter is not just for Titus. It's addressed to him, but in many ways it authorizes him. It gives him the authority to do the things that Paul wants him to do. Paul is by extension granting Titus, because he's naming him, some of Paul's own apostolic authority like I said last week, for anyone who wants to claim apostolic succession, they need to show their book of the New Testament that names them, and then we can take that seriously. But Titus had such a letter from Paul. And so less that, it's less that Titus was actually a pastor in Crete, but rather he was, he was Paul's man on the spot, Paul's arms and legs, Paul's representative. He's, he's a proxy apostle, if you will. And so Paul has left him there, and in this chunk that we're going to take two weeks looking through. We're going to find out why he has left him there. What was so important that Paul leaves Titus behind. So let's read Titus 1, 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children or believers are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain but hospitable a lover of good self-controlled upright holy and disciplined he must hold firm the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let's pray. Dear God, we just pray that you would grant us insight into your word, that we would um, have eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, pray that you would um, grant the increase, that you would build us up in your image for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So here in this letter, Paul tells Titus, why he's been left behind. I'm sure this was not any news to Titus, but again, um, as Titus is going to carry out the things that Paul is having him do, people might ask, well, who are you to do this? And, and so this letter, in some senses, acts as Titus's authorization. Um, and we, we see here the very first thing is that the church is in a formative state. Unlike 1 Timothy, if you remember our study through 1 Timothy, The church there was established. They had elders. Um, It was a mature body. And so Timothy's task was rather different. Here we have a formative church. We have a church that's just beginning to come together. And and so Paul leaves Titus behind because what we're gonna see is the most pressing need for the church at Crete and the reason why Paul had to leave Titus behind was a lack of elders, the need for faithful elders in the local church. And that need was so great that Paul left Titus behind to set things in order. And last fall, when we got to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we got to the section on elders, we went through in one week. And I told you then that because of how recently Pastor Gary had done a a two-week series on elders, that we would wait till we got to Titus To dive in a little more deeply. So we're going to go through this this chunk, five through nine, in two weeks, Um, and I hope it will be a blessing. We're going to look at this in two weeks, asking the question, what are elders, and how does this work, and church governance, and all other sorts of exciting topics, which I hope you will see by the time we are done our study that they are exciting, they are important. So that's the setup. So our first point we're going to look at is a plurality, plurality, of elders in the local church. This is what's important. Um, Paul tells him literally that I left you in Crete so that you could set in order, literally, the things that are lacking, the things that are coming up short, the things that are disordered. And then his first task in ordering this formative church that's just been birthed is the need for elders. I think it's striking. That's that's the number one concern Paul has for this church. Not a, He's not looking for a You need to find a senior pastor, or you need to get um, a children's pastor, or you need to get a vision committee. No, I left you in Crete to set in order what was lacking, namely, to appoint elders in every town. Um, And notice that, by the way, plural. The reason why that word plurality is there, I want you to appoint elders, plural, literally in the Greek, according to each town according to each city and town. So each town needed elders. They weren't quite qualified. They weren't tight grown at the time that Paul was there. And so by leaving Titus behind, the assumption is they would be growing up over time. That also assumes that the this early church is focusing on discipling and training and teaching its men. This is one of the reasons why Pastor Gary and I started the Tough Men program. To grow up, to train up, to equip the body so that in time... Uh, our body will continue to bear the fruit of elders. So they weren't ready yet when, when Paul was there, but he's expecting at some point in Titus's ministry, there will be men who are elder qualified. There's two striking differences between the list of qualifications in Titus and 1 Timothy. Largely, they're identical. And the two biggest differences is in 1 Timothy, Paul requires it not to be a new convert, and he must have a good reputation with those who are outsiders. And both of those requirements are dropped, presumably because no one in the Crete church is an old believer. And as we'll get to uh, see in two weeks when Greg Rolak preaches, the besetting sin—jump If j- jump down in chapter 1 to um, verse 12. The besetting sin of the culture, what characterized the culture in Crete was not godliness— verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. And so it's not likely that any of these recent converts are going to have terribly good reputations in the community because prior to their conversion, they were probably an awful lot like that. Now other than that, the requirements match up nearly identically. So Paul seems to be making some allowance for the relative youthfulness of the church and the recent conversion of most of its members. Um, That's probably the biggest difference between what's going on in Titus' context and what's going on at Ephesus with Timothy. So our first point, a plurality of elders in the local church. And we're just going to look at this as priority, identity, and function. And, And so the priority is just looking at how important of an issue this is. I know that um, most people as they study the Bible, trying to understand church polity or church governance or church order and structure, it's not usually the top of the bestseller Christian list, is it? It's not usually the type of thing, I can't wait till I get to study church governance. And consequently, I think there's a lot of people who think this is kind of up for grabs, um there's a lot of people who kind of think, well, there's you know all sorts of different ways to run churches, there's all sorts of different ways to order churches, and you know, who knows? And well, I think God has given us at the very least some clear foundational principles on and the structuring of a church. And so it's important to note that this is such an important issue. He leaves Titus behind. In a day where travel is not easy, where there are no jets, or trains. Um, Paul leaves Titus behind because of the importance of this, the priority. And so literally, in what Paul says to Titus, that it, I want you to set in order the things that are lacking, the implication is a church without elders is lacking. It's, it's, it's not fully ordered. It's not fully formed. It doesn't mean it's sinful. These, these people weren't in sin. But it's, it's not complete. It's not whole. It's not as it ought to be again a plural elders here um and this is important i have a friend of mine who's a pastor and i was just chatting with him about how they order their church and and uh i asked him do you guys have elders he said no i said why not he said i don't know i guess we don't i guess and as i've been studying through this i think how on earth can you not know when something like this is so important A church, a local church that doesn't have a plurality of elders. I grew up in New England where there's a lot of these one-elder churches. Um, And what Paul is saying is each church needs, for it to be whole, for it to be mature, for it to be as it ought to be, well-ordered, a plurality of elders. This is the consistent practice of the local church found in Scripture. And I'll just read a couple passages here, but every glimpse we get, the ordering of the local church in the new testament has this going on acts 14 23 this is paul when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting they committed them to the lord in whom they had believed Um, in acts 15 there's the jerusalem council and the church in jerusalem has elders the apostles and the elders came together to discuss the issue do the gentiles need to be circumcised there are elders present in the church in Jerusalem. In Acts 20, verse 17, Paul, on his way to Rome, sends for the elders at Ephesus. And 1 Peter, Peter addresses the elders of the church. So every glimpse we see of the organization of the local church, there are elders present. And one of the, the beautiful things about a plurality of elders is that it guards against diatrophies. Now, I'm sure you all know who Diotrephes is. No, he's a character who shows up one place only, 3 John. I want you to listen to this. 3 John, John's writing to the church. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, and also stops those who want to put wants to, and puts them out of the church. So at this church, there's this guy, Diatrophes, and he thinks he's a big shot, and he's throwing his weight around, and that can happen in the local church, and I'm sure you know of churches where um, the the senior pastor, whoever's in charge, if it's one man, if that one man starts to uh, lose his center, so to speak, um, a lot of harm can be done. I mean, don't get me wrong by what I said earlier. I'm not saying senior pastor as a title is, is a bad thing per se. Um, the point is this. I, as, as senior pastor, and Daniel Moore coming in as associate pastor, um, I'm, not, I'm not in some category above the other elders. I am an elder. In 1 in Timothy 5, we see distinction among the elders. There are, are normal elders, and there are some elders who labor in word and doctrine, who receive double pay or honor, And that seems to indicate that there's a distinction between elders who eld full-time for a living, as it were, and elders who eld part-time and keep their day jobs. And so distinction and and identifying spheres of focus, that's fine. Um, The point is this. I'm just an elder. One of the things that I love about getting together with the other elders in this church is is no one treats me like the big shot. Imagine that. (laughs) Imagine that. No, and it was the same before me with Pastor Gary, um, that this understanding that the senior pastor, quote-unquote, isn't in some category on top. He's just another elder. And this plurality of elders, this council of elders guards the church from a one-man show, guards the church from a power trip. And it's not to say that plurality of er elders can't get into error and do bad things. They can. It's just a little harder. But more importantly christ rules his church through his word and, and and the point i want to get at is this in second timothy 3:16 and 17 a very familiar passage to to most of you paul writes to timothy all scriptures inspired of god and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction for training in righteousness the man of god may be competent fully equipped for every good work and So scripture then makes us, and we talked about this back in our series on the Bible, competent for every good work. And so that begs the question, is the scripture competent for the good work of ordering the church? I think the answer we gotta give is yes. The scripture is competent for ordering the church. Um, And so elders are an important function. The Lord has given us only a few structures within the church. We've been given deacons, we've been given elders, we've been given widows lists, And it's not to say that as need arises, we can't um, come up with our own structures, but at the very least, we should be starting with what's given to us by the Lord. Um, And that's one of the things I love about being in this church is this is something we've received with joy and we are practicing and God has raised up qualified godly men in our midst and it's a great joy to be yoked with them, serving alongside of them. The danger, I think, is that when you start creating other things in place of elders, and I know of churches where the deacons function as elders or the, um, the vision team functions as elders or the board of directors or whatever. The problem with once you do that is you're going off script. If we stick with the categories the Lord has given us, then who gets to define what those jobs do and who's qualified for those jobs? Well, the Lord does. If we're dealing with elders and we're dealing with deacons, scripture gives us clear lists that any one of you can read and hold up to the man and say, okay, these two things aren't lining up. But if we come up with our church is going to be run by the board of directors, who gets to decide what the qualifications are for a board of director? We do, right? And so we can make that mean whatever we want. We can do whatever we want with that. It's ours to define. It's ours to shape or reshape as we want. And so I think it's important not to go too far off script. The Lord rules his church through his word, And he's given us these things. And Paul thinks this is so important for Titus that he leaves him behind. Okay, moving on next to identity. Okay, who are these elders? Well, you've heard this before, but I want to make this point explicit here. Elder equals overseer equals pastor. In this very passage alone, the two of the terms, elder and overseer, are used interchangeably. Look at that in verse um, six. It's five, sorry. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders. Then verse 7, for an overseer, which is the word presbyteros, where the Presbyterian church gets its name from. Uh, The one for elder, episkopos, which the Episcopalian church gets its name from. A lot of the church denominations are actually named after their form of church governance. And yet in this passage, the episcopal, the episcopos, the elder, and the um, presbyteros, or bishop, some people translate it as, or overseer, they're the same thing, clearly. He's using them interchangeably. I want you to point elders. Here's what an overseer needs to be. Elder, overseer. And the third one that comes into play is that of pastor-shepherd. Pastor is just a word for a shepherd. Um, Turn to 1 Peter 5. the sake of time, we'll skip over um, Acts 20, but you can see those three terms get brought together there, but it's really clear in 1 Peter 5. Well, what I think we're dealing with is that elder is the title of the position, and overseer and shepherd speak to function, what they do. These are men who give oversight. These are men who shepherd the church. Um, that'd be my best guess of dealing with the three titles, but you'll see them all come together here. Verse one, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is being revealed, shepherd, pastor, you could just as easily put in there, the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Same, same word. There are three words. Overseer, elder, shepherd, and it may not jump out as clearly in English, but they're there. And it keeps going. Not under a th- compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And so, so Peter has a word for the elders who he tells to exercise oversight and to shepherd and pastor. The same bringing together those three terms can be seen in, in Acts 20, but I, I won't belabor the point. These are all the same thing. Um, if you're an elder, you're a pastor, you're an overseer. This is one of the reasons why when our search committee formed to, to look for an associate, we wanted to find someone who was elder qualified. And as we said before, Daniel Moore will not come in as immediately as an elder, but we would have... Um, ceased looking at somebody, if it became clear they were not elder qualified because we don't want to keep these titles separate for long. We just think it's important for for the whole church to witness Daniel's life and his marriage and his home and his character so that we mean something significant when we affirm these character qualities of him. But it's our hope and our assumption that in time um, that will be demonstrated, that we will be able to heartily say amen and, and unite pastor with elder even there. Because they're the same thing. A pastor is an overseer, is a shepherd, is an elder, or bishop, or however you want to translate it. Different translations take it different ways. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Which then brings the question of function. Okay, what what do these pastor, overseer, elders do? Well, I'm glad you asked. Four things, I think chiefly four things. Um, the first blank: feed the flock feed the flock. We see that here in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict. The word for sound doctrine literally healthy doctrine. He's got to feed the flock. This is what Jesus told Peter when he restored him in John 21. When, When they'd finished eating breakfast Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And so one of the chief qualifications, and we'll be looking at this next week, is this ability to teach, to feed the flock. And that's what's an important characteristic. In fact, that's really the distinguishing characteristic that separates elders from deacons. In many ways, the character qualities are identical, except for this one. The elders need to be able to teach in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. They need to feed the flock. Secondly is lead, lead the flock. We see that just in the title of overseer. There's leadership, there's management, there's vision involved in this. Um, We saw that just a minute ago in 1 Peter to shepherd the flock, to lead the flock, Um, to, to, to to sort of have the big picture, looking at the whole church, the whole flock, leading, oversight. Third, to guard the flock. To guard the flock. And this, this really is, is seen in Titus because he's concerned. In fact, when Greg preaches in two weeks, we, we see this, this qualification for elders in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. Since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So there's there's this teaching ability is sort of dual-edged. One is feeding healthy food to the flock. The other is guarding the flock, the church, from error. Guarding the flock from error. This also shows up really clearly in Paul's address to the the Ephesian elders. In Acts 20, he says to them, And remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. This is Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders. And he says, watch out, be on your guard. Wolves are gonna to seek to devour the flock. Don't let them. So this is guarding taking place. And finally, care for the flock. Care for the flock. And again, this sort of comes through again in that word overseer, these, the stewardship. Sorry, down in verse seven. An overseer as God's steward, literally house manager, household manager. And this is where we sort of see the caring, fatherly aspect. But please turn to Ezekiel 34, to one of my favorite passages that points this out. Um, this just gets my blood pumping. Ezekiel 34, um, just a wonderful picture and reminder of what it means to shepherd. And if you're ever going to be a husband or a wife, you're going to have kids, you have friends, we're all going to be shepherding in some respect. This isn't just for a few select people, but you really get at the heart of what it means to shepherd and care for other people. I don't think there's any better passage than Ezekiel 34. Um, The Lord is angry with the shepherds of Israel because they aren't doing this. They are not shepherding the flock. And then he boldly and amazingly declares that what they fail to do, he himself will do. Ezekiel 34. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat one, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered. Because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. And they were wandered over all, every mountain and every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search for them. There's the Lord angry at shepherds who are not feeding the sheep, who are not strengthening the weak, who are not healing the sick, who are not binding up the injured. We're not bringing back the strayed and we're not seeking the lost. And then wonderfully, the Lord... Back. We are back. All right. Thank you, AV people. All right. Now, in verse 11 the Lord, because he has such a love for his flock, he has such a love for his people, he's not going to leave it there. Listen to this. For thus says the Lord, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places that they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out of the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in the inhabited places of the country and I will feed them with good Pasture, And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. They shall lie down in good grazing land, and a rich pasture shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice." And there is an awesome and wonderful picture of the shepherd heart of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. No wonder Peter calls him the chief shepherd. Shepherds need to care for the flock. It's it's more than just preaching a sermon, It's, it's, it's caring for the weak, the injured, the lost, the strayed, the sick. What does it mean to be an elder? It means to feed the flock means to lead the flock. It means to guard the flock, and it means to care for the flock. So that's the importance, the priority, the identity, and the function. And now we'll begin, but not finish, begin to look at the qualifications for elders. The qualification or the quality of elders in the local church. I'm really only only going to get as far as verse 7a. And the reason for that, if you look carefully, is that Paul brackets off 6 to 7a. 6 to 7a is bracketed off as its own section. And the bracketing is occurred by this word blamelessness. Now look at this in verse 6. If anyone is above reproach or blameless, the husband of one wife, his children are believers, and not open to the charge of reproach debauchery or insubordination for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. There that word occurs again. So there's a sandwich of above reproach in the ESV. Other translations say blamelessness. And in between that sandwich is, is his marriage and his children. And only after this, this bookend does the laundry list of five not this, not this, not this, not this, and six positive but this, but this, but this, but this, but this. And then the fire and Requirement of ability, the ability to teach. And so, so Paul is highlighting, it's the same thing he does in, in Timothy, this notion of blamelessness or above reproach. So as we look at the quality of elders in the local church, we first see that really there's only one qualification here it's being above reproach. It means being um, the blank, they're not indictable. Everything else unpacks and explains what this means. It's the same way he does it in 1 Timothy. It is necessary for an elder to be above reproach. And then he starts to describe what that means. I was talking with Jeff Zimmerman about this on uh, Friday. Friday. And I think so. And we were talking, and that also then means that this list isn't necessarily exhaustive. I mean, notice not a blasphemer is not on this list. But I'd like to think if a person were blasphemer, cussing and swearing all the time, they would not be above reproach. Um, So the notion here of not indictable is that an accusation will not stick. It does not mean that they're sinless. It doesn't mean that they're perfect. What it means is a valid charge brought against them would not stick. An indictment would not be made. Uh, Another way to think about it, as I look through this list of qualifications, it's not that someone's perfect in every one of them, but they're able to model it. I think to myself, could I pull up my son Abner and point to an elder and say, you could learn about hostility from this person. You could learn about loving good from this person. You could learn about being a good husband from this person. And, and so that's what, I'm, that's what I understand these qualifications to be. Not perfection, but some level of maturity. And it's all summed up in this word above reproach, not indictable, which is exactly what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3. And what's interesting in both instances, the first place that Paul goes to, to evaluate and demonstrate somebody's above reproachness is the home. It's is demonstrated first and foremost in the home life, which is exactly where he goes in 1 Timothy 3, very first place he goes. He goes to their marriage. He goes to their children. And only after dealing with that does the laundry list come. It's an important laundry list, and we'll look at it next week. This week, we're just going to look at this centrality of the home, and for those of you who are married, for those of you who have children, I think it makes a bit more sense because there's nothing that has been more rewarding in my life than my marriage and my children. And there's also been nothing more difficult, more sanctifying, more stretching than my marriage and my children. Nothing. Um, and, and so it makes sense that if this is, this is the forge where for most of us, the Lord is going to conform us to his image, then let's see how they're doing there. Um, And so we're going to look at these two qualifications. The first, a one-woman man. Now, the ESV translates this as the husband of one wife, but it then has a little footnote saying literally a one-woman man. And there's all sorts of different views on this. Uh, The most popular are this would mean not divorced or not a polygamist. Um, And I'll briefly explain why I don't think either of those fit. Not a polygamist isn't setting the bar very high. Let's just say that. (laughs) Uh, Um, you can only have one you know or one at a time you can't have more than one at a time no I don't think that's what's going on here this would not be a terrible this would not be a tremendous indication of above reproachness but again neither would the notion of not being divorced again in in the Cretian culture we have no idea what these men's background is and again it's not a mark of character that you haven't had a divorce you could be a terrible husband and not have had a divorce um, but the best insight to this comes from the reverse use of the term in First Timothy 5.9. In First Timothy 5.9, faithful widows are called one-man women. It's the exact reverse of what he says here, a one-woman man. And in 1 Timothy 5.9, Paul says, Let a widow be enrolled, if she is not less than 60 years of age, being a one-woman man. And what's interesting... Is I don't know whether your English translation puts that in the present tense. In Greek, it's present tense. What Paul is saying is whatever it means to be a one-man woman endures, continues, even in her widowhood. Because it's a character quality. What he's saying is a faithful wife. And she continues to be a faithful wife even as a widow. She's, she's built that character. And as you think about the rest of the qualifications, not, not argumentative, not violent, not greedy... Not divorce seems like a strange sort of one to put in. Far better, faithful husband. Faithful husband, that's the blank. One woman man literally, I think, means a faithful husband. Just as a one man woman means a faithful wife, this widow. I think this is also important because I know men who precisely because of their faithfulness, their marriages deteriorate. He doesn't say someone who has a good marriage. He says a faithful husband. A faithful, one-woman man. A man whose wife has his heart and that's it. It doesn't say a good marriage. Because sometimes being a faithful husband is the very thing that will deteriorate your marriage if your wife isn't interested in the truth right now. Sometimes being a faithful wife can be the very thing that deteriorates your marriage. Paul deals with that in 1 Corinthians 7. And so what we're looking for is a faithful, one-woman type of man. Um, This isn't about status. This is about character. It's about character. And the next one is probably the most hotly debated issue in the entire book. The ESV translates it, having believing children. Um, Almost all translations take it that way. The King James does not. The Holman-Sander does not. But all other major translations translate it, having believing children. Thankfully, once again, the ESV is a footnote, or faithful children. And in a moment or two, I'll explain to you why I think this is faithful children, But that is what I believe it is. And so the blanks there, having faithful children equals obedient, respectful children. Um, And and I'll explain why. The next question, why not believing children? I got at least three reasons. One, in the Greek, the word um, pistis can mean faithful or faith. It can be an adjective or it can be a noun and it's completely legitimate in this case to translate it either way. The grammar allows both. Paul could be saying, if you looked at it simply at the words, believing children, or he could be saying faithful children. Both are valid. So context is to tell us which one he means. To make it even more complicated, he uses this word both ways in the pastoral epistles. He talks about faithful witnesses, or this is a trustworthy word, same word, which just means reliable, dependable. And other times he talks about believers and believing people. And so we got to try to figure out what does he mean? And I think a very helpful thing here is when you say this, not that. They need to be believing or faithful children, not in a charge of drunkenness and rebellion. I think faithful, trustworthy, reliable, dependable, lines up a lot better as the contrast with not a drunkard, not rebellious than believing Another reason why I think it's, it's, it's faithful, trustworthy, is because as we've seen already, if anything, Paul has, has made some accommodation for the situation at Crete. These, these are new believers. He can't say what he said in, in 1 Timothy, which is that they, they can't be new converts. He doesn't tell them they, they have to have a good reputation with outsiders. So it would seem strange for Paul to elevate this new requirement that does not occur in Timothy, and, and third, the other reading, faithful, trustworthy, harmonizes perfectly with what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, where the children have to be under control, respectful, dignified. So one reading perfectly harmonizes with Timothy, perfectly harmonizes, I think, with the contrast that comes later in the verse. And so for those reasons, I think it's it's a slam dunk. This is faithful, dependable, reliable, or the blanks, obedient and dutiful children. One final argument, I think, in this favor is found in Isaiah chapter 1. You don't need to turn there, but in Isaiah 1, the Lord identifies himself as a father of unbelieving children. And that becomes a problem because Paul remembers defining for us what it means to not be indictable, what it means to not be able to have a moral charge brought against you. And if you concluded that the ESV's got it right here in saying believing children then you must also then conclude that if your children prove not to be believers, that that is a moral indictment that can be brought against you. There's guilt associated with that. There is culpability and fault. Because after all, he's explaining what it means to not be culpable, to not be blamable. And then it becomes very strange to consider how the Lord then, if, if having unbelieving children, it automatically means you're to blame, then it seems very strange that the Lord would say this in Isaiah chapter one, verses two and three. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. And and I, I would have a very difficult time believing that the Lord, admittedly using a metaphor, would use a metaphor that would mean he's at fault. He's to blame. Or at least partially. That, that, that would be very difficult for me to, 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 to square up. So I believe this just means what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 obedient, dutiful children, not charged with debauchery or insubordination. Um, debauchery, drinking, profligacy, I think the King James might say, um, wildness, wanton living, and insubordination. This is talking back. This is attitude. This is lip. This is the stiff neck and the you can't tell me what to do. Rebellion. And, and it's interesting. There's a link here between that term and if you look down in verse 10, these false teachers who are also insubordinate. And what we're going to see then is the reason why this is so important is, is this. And this sort of gets us to our point three here. A faithful stewardship that Paul says this, this elder must be as overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. The word for steward is household manager, household management. And so it's the same implied argument that Paul makes in 1 Timothy, which is this. The church is the household of God. And so those men who are going to rise to leadership in the household of God, they have their own households. Let's see how they do there. And just as in a home, there can be rebellious, insubordinate children. Well, let's see how this father does with that. Well, we're gonna see in the church, there can be rebellious, insubordinate people. And demonstrating yourself faithful in the one qualifies you for the other. That's the point. Demonstrating yourself faithful in the one qualifies you for the other. That's the analogy, the assumption. If you wanna be God's house manager, let's see how I do with your house. And this this again gets us to the priority and centrality of the home. And I just want to close as the worship team comes up for our final song by by encouraging you that not not everyone here is being called by God to be an elder. But all of us are being called to, to prepare for godly homes. Um, the gift of singleness aside, all of us are being called to prepare to be or prepare to be godly husbands, godly wives. Or godly children. The home is what the Lord created to to demonstrate His glory. And we see the priority for that. And it's as men excel in the home that we're going to be reaping the crop of future elders in this church. And so I just want to encourage you here if you're a man, if you're a woman, if you're an adult, if you're a child, home life matters. The Lord cares intimately about the state of our homes, the state of our families, the state of our marriages. And it's no small thing. No career trumps that. No ministry trumps that. No other calling trumps that. First and foremost, I'm a husband and a father. So please stand, and we're going to sing a closing song, the gospel song, as we pray that the Lord would help us to be the husbands, the fathers, the children that he would have us to be to demonstrate his glory and to build his church.